Welcome to Next Normal, the podcast that is reimagining capitalism and exploring the ways that money can do so much more than just make more money. Here is your host, the co-founder of the Global Impact Investing Network, Ahmed Buri. Hello and welcome to Next Normal. Our podcast is charting pathways towards the next normal in our global economic system. We are always working to highlight the wide variety of approaches driving progress. And today's guest is a next normal first. Joe Swinson is Director of Partners for a New Economy and the former leader of the Liberal Democrats in the United Kingdom, making her the first next normal guest with a formal government leadership background. From 2012 to 2015, she served as business minister in the UK, and in 2009, she co-founded a cross-party group of MPs to work collaboratively on new economic thinking and well-being economics. Joe is a global standout in the new wave of leaders working to embed more holistic thinking into national budgets and into our economic system more broadly. Her work touches just about everything our podcast is about. Joe, welcome to Next Normal. Really fantastic to be with you. I'm an avid listener of your podcast, so it's great to be on. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And there's so much I want to cover, but I actually wanted to start with a little bit of your background. Obviously, your work in Partners for a New Economy is incredibly compelling, and I know we'll discuss that in a bit. But I'd actually like to begin this discussion a bit farther back in your story. You co-founded that group of cross-party MPs focused on new economic thinking back in 2009. That was right around the time that my organization, the Global Impact Investing Network, got started. And so I know personally that it was, in many ways, a very different time. And new economic thinking was not nearly as widespread then as it is now. Can you tell me about how that collaboration initially started and how you were able to get some traction for that group's thinking? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think I'd been uh, really interested from the very beginning of my political career and before in, you know, what needed to change about our economy. Uh, Growing up, one of my real role models was Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop, who was just so inspiring in terms of her thought process about how you do business differently. And so one of the things that I had thought needed changing was the focus of the economy. The metric of GDP is not at all a proxy for how much progress there is in a society. And yet it is what most countries are absolutely fixated on. So, I mean, I was writing about that very soon after I was first elected. I was elected in 2005 and contributed a chapter to a book about that in 2006 and you know led a debate in parliament about it and really was thinking about how do you start to make some progress and i was really fortunate that also in the uk parliament was a labor member of the house of lords professor richard layard who had written a very influential book called happiness and he had been looking at a really specific policy way at things like what do you do about mental health problems and the fact that if you actually invest in mental health provision you save government's money in terms of payments for people who are unable to work. And it's a much better thing to try and help people in that way rather than have people sort of languishing and unable to live the fulfilled life and indeed productive working life that they would like to have. So we got together. I was a Liberal Democrat, of course. He was in the Labour Party. And we found some like-minded people within the Conservative Party and really started a debate within the UK Parliament. And again, you know, fortunate at the time, the head of the civil service, so the most important 
important non-politician, the most important official within uh, the government was Gus O'Donnell, who is himself now in the, the House of Lords. And he was very interested in this agenda too and gave a lot of support. So there was some good progress made. And in 2010-11, the Office for National Statistics actually started measuring alongside its other statistic collection, how people were feeling in terms of life satisfaction. So that really interesting policy analysis could be done about, you know, whether a particular policy had improved people's feeling of well-being or whether indeed it had decreased that. I can see the thread of that thinking and that work leading to your work now in Partners for a New Economy, uh, which centers on this idea of, quote, making the economy work for people and nature is a concept that is very familiar in the impact investing space, but we're still so far from that ideal. So we ask every one of our next normal guests to drill down on the fundamental problem with the status quo economic system. And obviously that's a big question, and we know that, but how do you distill it down in terms of how you focus your work? So I think there's a few fundamental problems with the economic system, and our work is really focused on that uh, systemic economic problem. You know, most people, most individuals who go to work, who, you know, work in business, who work in government, who work in civil society, you know, they, they want a world that is better where people and, and the environment are protected and, and nurtured. And yet we have a system that sort of conspires against that. So we need to think about collectively, how do we solve that systemic issue. Now, one of the problems, and I mentioned this already, is that you know the aim of the economy is deemed to be growth or GDP. And we know, and it's been, I mean, even the inventors of GDP pointed out its limitations. You know, Robert Kennedy back in the 1960s spoke so eloquently about all of the wonderful things that, that make our life worth living, but that GDP completely ignores. And while, you know, it does tell us some things about an economy, and certainly when, when material needs are really not being met, then it can be true that it is perhaps a more useful measure. Really, as those material needs are met more and more, it becomes a much less helpful figure because it really doesn't explain what a good life is. So that's one fundamental problem. Another one is that our current economics is sort of assuming that we are all robots when the reality is that we're human beings, right? So it assumes that we're all perfectly rational, that we have some complete data set of all of the information that could possibly be at our fingertips. And even if, uh, you know, technically with the internet, some of that may be true, we all know the challenge of, of information overload. And and when you, there's too many choices, actually, you, you can become paralyzed by being able to make those choices. And the assumption is that we are purely selfish and that, you know, we're just all out for uh, number one and don't care about anything else. And, and that just is palpably not true. We are social beings. We cooperate. You know, our superpower, if you like, is that we are able to cooperate across very local communities, across our towns, cities, and indeed internationally. We can cooperate with people who we haven't even met. And while competition can be a useful force. Again, the idea that that is what will drive the best result uh, all the time is, is just fundamentally flawed. So we have a system that fetishizes markets and says that that's what will get you the best allocation of resources, but really sidelines or ignores the role of states, the role of households, communities, civil society. If you just take an example like the pandemic, we really saw how you actually start to solve problems. And yes, markets 
are a part of that. You know, there's no doubt that you know private companies played their role in the research and development of vaccines. But it's also true that it was with very significant cooperation with governments. And indeed, to have a successful vaccine rollout programme, you need communities to be bought in. You need a sense of trust within society. And so it's all of those different elements working together that gets you to success. It's not like you can just say, well, that's it. The market solution is the best solution. And then the final thing I think is really wrong with our economic system is this kind of intellectual hole that suggests that if we just have more and more stuff, that we just have this pursuit of growth, that that somehow is compatible with a finite planet. You know, it just ignores those basic planetary boundaries because we know that nowhere in the world has the decoupling of growth from, you know, resource extraction happened in any kind of significant way. We know that the environmental footprint that we all have increases with income. So it's kind of strange that we call Western societies developed and think that we've somehow got it all sussed and solved when actually we've got societies which are hurting our very environment, making it less likely that future generations are going to be able to live and thrive and flourish like we would want them to do. So I would say, you know, the the pursuit of growth instead of well-being, the assumption that we're robots rather than complex human beings, and the fetishization of markets really are some of the fundamental problems with the way our system is currently set up. Well, I think what you're saying also just gets at the fundamental purpose of our economy and our economic system. And I think you've been working for a long time now on you know, how do we actually rethink the purpose of our economy. And one of the things I think is so powerful and compelling is you know, putting happiness and well-being right at the center of what the actual driving purpose and objective function, if you will, of our economic system should be. Can you paint the picture of what a transformed economic system could look like? Like if we were actually optimizing around well-being, what would our economy look like? What would the world feel like? I think one of the best models for how to conceptualize it is Kate Raworth's work on donut economics and the best-selling book that she wrote of that name, which talks about meeting basic standards of human dignity and doing so within that Goldilocks zone of still not overshooting planetary boundaries, whether that's on ocean acidification or air pollution or pesticide use. And so that donut is kind of the zone we need to be aiming for. And what would that actually look like in our day-to-day life? I think if you think about the way in which we consume products, then instead of this kind of, you know, fast cycle of buying things, throwing them away, you would actually have products that were good quality, that were uh, made to last, where you would be able to repair them, where you would have more of a sharing economy. So you wouldn't own everything yourself. I mean, there's some great statistics on things like power drills and like how few minutes the average power drill is like used for in a year. So there's clearly examples of things where not everybody needs to have their own thing. And uh, uh, particularly with our technological advances, the ability to coordinate sharing ought to get easier and easier. I think we'd have food production looking very differently. I think we would actually have that 
closer to home. It would be more in line with seasonality and it would be less industrialised. It would be more in, in harmony with nature. I think our communities would look and feel different. We would physically restructure them in terms of priorities for certainly in urban environments, for public transport networks, for walking and cycling being more pleasant and safe feeling uh, ways to to get about. And then I think there's a thing about time. What do we spend our time doing? I think we would have more time with one another. We would have more time for caring and relationships, whether that is as parents, as children looking to our own parents, as siblings, as colleagues, as friends, when, you know, we've got a problem with mental health challenges, we've got problems of loneliness in our communities. And so I think an economy which placed more emphasis on care would enable us to, yes, do our jobs, whether that is producing things that are needed for our lives or whether that is, you know, creativity and the arts, which are inspiring, uh, or whether that is working in uh, essential services in terms of, you know, healthcare and uh, education and so on. So we would, we would do those things, but we would also have more time within our communities. And I think probably to facilitate some of that, you, you need some types of form of universal basic income. I mean, I think there's different different ways that's being trialled. And I, you know, I, I recognise there's still some policy challenges there, but you'd certainly look at a taxation system being more focused on taxing resources, which are, which are scarce, and therefore we ought to be using them more efficiently rather than treating those as things just to be extracted. And I think business would be focused on solving problems. You know, it would be focused on really putting all the creative ingenuity that exists into dealing with the massive challenges of our time. And we have seen that with coronavirus. Well, you've seen it with the way suddenly, you know, perfume manufacturers switched to manufacture hand sanitizer because there was a, there was a shortage at the beginning of the pandemic taking into account that we now know that the virus is much more airborne and you know ventilation is probably more important than sanitization but you know it's an example of how you know for what we knew then you know business suddenly rose to the occasion and I think it's sometimes quite sad when you think about something like Silicon Valley where you've got all these big tech companies where they are doing amazing innovation in lots of ways and there's undoubtedly been you know, connections between people in different parts of the planet that has unleashed all sorts of, you know, wonderful new ventures. But I mean, bluntly, so many of these big platforms have just become advertising machines. And so the focus is on how to be more efficient and effective at advertising to all of us in order to make us want and buy more stuff that is also going to be problematic for the environment. So it's kind of creating problems rather than solving them. Just imagine if the collective energy of the people working at Facebook and Amazon and Google was actually helping to solve the challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change and making our societies more more equal, both within societies and around the world between countries. Just imagine what we could do if we unleashed all of that. Well, that absolutely resonates with me in so many ways. I think one of the things, even at a, at a very tactical level, the work that we're doing at the gin with impact investing, part of what I think the revolutionary idea behind it is actually to design a method and an approach for investors to be optimizing all their efforts around kind of impact performance, not just financial performance. 
And one of the things that excites me most about that is just this notion that if you think of all the effort and attention and knowledge and kind of capability put in trying to get a little bit more financial return and beating the market in that, and what if we were trying to do that from an impact perspective? Yeah. And this point you're raising around, like if, if we were investing or if business was focused on solving, you know, critical challenges. And from our standpoint, if investors were putting capital into businesses with that focus, it is absolutely, I think, inspiring and kind of astonishing to think of the potential we could unleash. I completely agree. I mean, I'm obviously not part of the investment community. So I, I speak as a lay person, but there's a couple of things that I just think are, you know, fundamentally need a bit of rethinking. I mean, one is this concept of impact as if it's only ever positive impact, right? So as if the only people that care about impact are those people who are wanting to do good, which is great that there's people who are wanting to invest their money to, to improve our world. But why do we assume that, that any other investment is neutral? Because the reality, of course, is that so many investments have massive negative impact that is just not being counted at all. And indeed, if many of the people who ultimately had that money, and I think one of the challenges here is, you know, the, the long chain from the person who, who has the money to the decisions being made and the, the kind of lack of accountability within that, you know, many people would not actually want that to be what happened. I mean, one of the organizations that we fund is called Make My Money Matter. And it's trying to encourage people to put pressure on their pension funds because, you know, people's pensions are, you know, their money is being invested in their future and is generally still being invested in, you know, fossil fuel companies, in companies that are extractive and that are making the future less safe. And yet people's own money is funding that. And worse, the kind of restrictions that exist is that even if people want that to change, very often the kind of concept of fiduciary duty is requiring the financial return to be elevated above all other issues. When most people think about the retirement, they'd probably rather trade even if it was a slightly lower financial return for, you know, being able to breathe the air and, you know, their children being healthy and having a, a future to look forward to as well. So, I mean, that's one thing. And then the other thing I, I just think is, is the kind of assumptions around more financial return always being better. And at what point do investors actually question whether a return is too good to be true? You know, if it is double digit, you know, growth. Like, why is that? Is that because loads of costs aren't being taken into account? Is that because there's exploitation of people? Because there's slavery in the supply chain? Because there's massive deforestation? And a responsibility to really think about what's what's an acceptable amount of return, and and are the returns that are suspiciously high, rather than turning a blind eye and just saying, well, that's great, we'll we'll take some of that but to really think about it from a very responsible perspective about what impact we all have with the decisions we make. Well, and I think that's one of the things that we're certainly working towards is a much more holistic understanding of you know, the, the positive and negative impacts of a business. And of course, from an investor standpoint, how do you drive up the positive impact? How do you reduce the negative impact? You know, not to oversimplify something that's incredibly complex, but also the transparency as you outlined like into the supply chain. You know, what's it take from, I don't know, a, a coffee bean <laughs> to get harvested to end up, you know, um, brewed in your cup and all the different things that can actually, in one scenario, could be incredibly regenerative along that supply chain. You know, creating value for communities, you know, helping to strengthen nature, not extract from it. And uh, alternatively, it could be incredibly extractive as well. And obviously, 
we're very much focused on trying to shift things in the right direction. And I would love to hear from your perspective, you painted such a compelling view of like what the world could look like if we did put well-being at the center. And I'd hope most of our listeners, if not all of them, could would find that hard to disagree with. And the big question, of course, is how do we get from where we are today to that potential world that we all want to live in? Obviously, part of your job is to help make that happen. That part is for a new economy. And so I'd love to hear kind of where do you even start? Like, how do you think about the right strategies to drive a systemic shift, especially with the system that's so entrenched? It's certainly not easy. And it's it's one of the things that I find so fascinating about doing this work. I mean, I suppose my basic view is that when you're trying to shift a system, you can't just focus on one sort of node in the the network because if you if you do that and even if that node is trying to move then because all of the other kind of web of of kind of networks around it are are kind of holding it in place then you know there will be burnout or it will snap or there'll be there'll be a you know breakage and it and it just won't work and i think you see that in you know, in civil society where you know people have burnt out or where, you know, a, a small uh, bit of progress has happened and then actually the system has just kind of protected itself and undone any progress. So I think what you really need to do is to try to tap into lots of different parts of the system. I mean, if you look at the investor system, you can't just focus on the asset owners. You can't just focus on the asset managers. You also need to look at what advice is being given through the, the investment consultants. It kind of all different parts of it need to be tapped into. And then if that happens simultaneously, then it's possible for like the whole system to kind of move a bit and it's moving together. So I think that's one of the things that we've tried to do. And we primarily aim to make impact by making grants. So we are a collaboration of six different philanthropic foundations and potentially more are, are interested in, in coming into this collaboration. And so we are basically supporting organisations that are running a wide range of projects. So at one level, in the kind of long term, we make grants to initiatives that are trying to change the education system, who recognise that, you know, Economics 101 is, is part of the problem, right? Because it's not for all the reasons I outlined before. It's just not painting the world as it is. And so we've there's a group of students called Rethinking Economics who are, you know, working internationally. Uh, and indeed, there's, there's a variety of different chapters that, that exist and another, you know, network for pluralist economics based in Germany and they are they are working to encourage universities to change their curriculum to have a more broad-based view of economics. There's also a group of academics that have kind of responded to the, the challenge and they have produced an alternative economics curriculum called CORE, which is quite a departure from existing economics textbooks. It's online, it's available for anyone to look at, whether they're studying economics or they're just an interested member of the public. And that's now being used in more than 300 different uh, universities in well over 50 countries. So, you know, those are two quite different ways of tackling that education issue. But then we funded, you know, at kind of major institutional level, we funded organisations that have campaigned for central banks to consider sustainability differently. And those were some of the first grants we made five or six years ago when we were set up. And, you know, obviously there's been a wide range of people that have been active in this movement, and there has been significant movement. So the Bank of England has now explicitly got uh, sustainability in its mandate. The European Central Bank is uh, making significant moves. There's now this kind of Green Central Bankers Club, that the network for greening the financial system, which has got well over 90 different central banks and regulators. 
And so, you know, that's that's an example of trying to do something at a really kind of big level. And then, you know, in the investment community, I mean, we're supporting entrepreneurs through the Finance Innovation Lab and an organization called Climate Safe Lending. And they've been involving people who are in banks or insurance companies or regulators who kind of see the problems. But again, they find it quite hard to change it from inside a big institution. So they come together and they brainstorm. It's a very safe space. And then they've actually done things like recently published a good transition guide. I mean, lots of people said, right, we're, we're net zero. Well, what does that look like? If you're a bank and you want to be net zero, what does a net zero plan look like? So they have published you know, a document that starts to at least set out what are the questions, what are the things that your net zero plan should, should address. So you know, we come at this from a lot of different angles, from finance, from central banking, from education, from policy, to try and have advocacy and fund movements to campaign, because you need to work at lots of different parts of the system all at once. That certainly resonates with the way we see the complexity of driving systems change, that you can't just pull one lever and have everything else change. And I do think, you know, it's also an interesting time when people talk a lot about the role of government. And it's, I find it can be quite binary, where, um, you know, there's one camp, just a caricature of this, you know, that, that thinks that, government's gridlocked, it's ineffective, it can't actually lead, and so everything has to be done outside, whether it's civil society or the private sector. Another, which is the other kind of extreme, which is like it can only be led by government uh, because of the representative nature of it, you know, but we are you know, trying to figure out how to actually push that kind of like you know, big tanker, if you will, um, into a better direction. Obviously, I don't think it's either one of those binaries, but yes, given your experience in government um, and also the the burdens being placed on government at this time, whether it's you know with um, kind of social instability and also you know really contending with massive challenges like COVID um, and the climate crisis, how do you see the role of government in helping to drive this progress? I think you know this needs to happen with government. Government is an essential factor because, as you say, you have that you know, representative legitimacy and accountability. And of course, like who else? I mean, ultimately, when it comes to crises, you know, we saw this in the pandemic, you know, people ultimately expect that the government is going to be looking after them and is going to try and figure this out. And, you you know, it can't just be subcontracted to the business sector. But I also think that there's probably an expectation that government has this more in hand than it actually does, which is what's quite terrifying, because I think people do have that expectation that, that kind of government can look at the information and, and kind of, you know, get it right. And a little bit like, you know, when the financial crash happened and the, the Queen famously spoke to an economist and said, well, hang on, why did no one see this coming? You know, I think there's there's real challenges, you know, in a democracy, the government being able to advocate change, perhaps at the ambitious level that is necessary. You know, my, obviously I'm based in, in the UK, so my experience is strongest here. But if you think about campaigns around things like vehicle fuel taxation, that's something which has been frozen in the UK for years and years. It's regressive because actually that means that the cost of public transport has gone up compared to the cost of driving in recent years. And yet the people who are the poorest in society and can't afford to own a car are the ones that rely on public transport. It's obviously really problematic for the environment when we're at a stage where we haven't yet transitioned to electric vehicles. And yet the political cost of trying to, to raise you know, fuel duty, I, I totally appreciate what that political cost would be. And we saw in France with the Gilets Jaunes, you know, a very similar thing. I know the recent German election, you know, there ended up being big debates on, you know, would aviation taxes mean that, you know, people's 
holiday to Mallorca was going to cost more. So, so some of this is actually quite difficult at the, the public debate level. And that's why, in addition to government needing to lead, I think it's also really important that we, you know, as we as philanthropists invest in movement building and campaigning to help, you know, share the information about where things are at, to help people take agency themselves to try to you know, advocate for, for change. And I think that's an important, an important element of what needs to happen is that that public movement. I think the other thing that you you mentioned is sort of, you know, the idea that you just kind of in a systems change that you just set out, this is what needs to happen. And I've got it perfectly set out. That isn't what you can do. I, I can't tell you exactly what, you know, a new economic system that, you know, properly valued our interaction with the the rest of the living world would exactly look like because it will need to emerge and it needs to be created by you know lots of different people rather than having this view that there's like one key person that can just have the plan and decide on it and then drive it through i think that's a very old way of looking at things that's a, like the old kind of economic system way and i think government needs to evolve in that way as well i think we need much more participation in these processes and you know there is a bit of a crisis in our democracy in many, particularly many Western countries, but not only Western countries. I mean, the rise of populism is a real threat. So, you know, as well as the economic system not really being fit for purpose, I think there's a lot of change needed in the the political system, as well as a strong leadership and more participation from from the public. You know, our democracy is not something which is just about voting once every few years. It's about something which, you know, actually being involved in how we collectively make decisions about shaping our future. That that absolutely resonates. And and I think one of the things that we often find ourselves thinking about is, you know, there are so many really inspiring uh, activities and leaders driving things all around the world. Um, And I do, you know, I at least have the view that systems change is on the table in a way that it hasn't been in at least my, my lifetime. And at the same time, you know, I do think there's this risk that all these great kind of ideas and activities and experiments and pilots um, don't actually add up. And so part of what we think about is a network and we, we, you know, we strive for, you know, we're, we're always working on this is how do we actually help, you know, connect these things, occur these nodes around the, you know, the world that are part of our network to help, you know, kind of maximize that chance that we can actually drive systemic change. Um, how do you think about, you know, just in the work that you're doing, given that it touches upon things globally in many ways? I know you have, you know, focused on specific geographies, but everything from, working with central banks, to working with entrepreneurs, to working with um, pensioners, you know, trying to drive change. How do you think about helping to ensure that all of this adds up to the sum being, you know, um, much greater, or sorry, the whole being much greater than the sum of the parts? I think the key is in, in the connectors. And our basic kind of approach is that we want to fund ideas that are going to help create the new economy. We want to fund the people that are going to help build the bridges. And we want to fund the power building that's going to create the momentum to to make it happen. And I think really key is within that is that there's linkages between, you know, those people that are working in positions of power, you know, within whether it's central banks or whether it's, you know, commercial banks, whether it's people within governments. Uh, We have a grant with the OECD where they're introducing new economic thinking. And so you've got people that are working in government departments that are grappling with these issues, but also all the way through to, to activists, because it's in those connections where I think the answers lie. And so we actually fund quite a lot of networks of some journalism through Open Democracy, which 
provides a platform to kind of showcase some of the amazing work that's going on, but really trying to make sure that people can connect with those who are working simultaneously on this issue, but from a very different perspective. And I mean, we've, we've also been involved in a research project recently that's been kind of looking at the landscape to try and distill uh, what are the commonalities of new economic thinking. And it's uh, it's soon going to be published. It's particularly focused on, on Europe. It's been run by a group called Demos Helsinki. And I think that kind of work is also really important to try to map and show, you know, where is the thinking? Where are the people that are actually doing this? And then how do we make sure that they can they can grow and these can become bigger communities of practice? Well, I want to build on that last note as we move to our lightning round, as we uh, unfortunately have to start to bring this to a close. But as you think about the future of capitalism, you know, which country or leader do you have your eye on? I'm going to choose a particular grouping of countries. So there is an initiative we fund called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, and they have helped to set up the Wellbeing Economy Governments Initiative, which is currently five governments around the world in New Zealand. Iceland, Scotland, Finland, and Wales. And what I think is really exciting about that is that they are um, meeting regularly, officials are swapping notes on policy initiatives. I don't think any country has got this sussed yet, right? Like there's so much that needs to change, but they are really clearly committed to being on that journey. And I think that's really inspiring to see. And they're all, you know, so far fairly small countries, which in some ways makes it easier to try things out and pilot things. You know, you, you're in a country of a few million people, you know, kind of in any given sphere, everybody knows everyone. So I think the wellbeing economy governments would be where I would uh, definitely keep an eagle eye. Great. Uh, and what is the single best book you can recommend on this topic? Well, I've heard that some of the amazing books have already been uh, recommended by previous guests, such as Donut Economics or um, Post Growth by Tim Jackson. So I'm actually going to suggest a book that I'm, I'm going out on a limb because I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> but I am loving Entangled Life by Marilyn Sheldrake. And that is a book about fungi, which you would think maybe doesn't have a lot to do with economics. But let me explain. It really is quite an astounding kind of look at how interconnected life is, how much of it we don't understand or we don't know about. And to me, it really speaks to the humility that we need in terms of thinking about how our economy interacts with the rest of the living world and about changing the perspective of being, you know, us, human beings and our economy over here and nature as being something different and separate over there. We are living beings, you know, we ourselves are kind of microbiomes for all sorts of different creatures that are, are living on and in us, you know, whether it's in our guts or on our skin. And so we are just connected and entangled with the rest of life. And if we keep trying to think that we are separate, it's not going to end well. We need to actually reconnect with that entanglement. So I think it's quite a good book for expanding your horizons. Fantastic. And who would you recommend that we interview on this podcast to keep pushing our thinking on these topics? So there's a couple I would recommend. So Sophie Howe is the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales. And there's not very many Future Generations Commissioners. Her job is really to 
to really think about generations to come and act as a conscience for the government in Wales on that. And so I think that long-term thinking is really valuable and she would be fascinating. And the other one is Beth Sawin, who's the co-director of Climate Interactive. And she's long been involved in you know climate modelling of different policies. But what I particularly love that she's doing, she's writing a book on multi-solving which is, again, recognising that, you know, the climate crisis, the nature crisis, the inequality in society, uh, racial inequality, patriarchy, all of these things are interconnected. And in fact, if you can start to have solutions that that work to solve more, more than one problem, that's the way forward. So I think she would have a great amount to contribute as well. And that sounds great. And I think one of the things that we find ourselves thinking about a lot about now in much more sophisticated ways than in our early days are the intersections of these different kind of issues. You know, how equity interacts with overextraction of natural resources, how it connects, you know, to you know, our efforts to address climate change, how they can compound inequities or actually help reduce them. But thank you for those suggestions. And Joe, I really want to thank you for your time with us. Um, it's been an incredibly rich discussion. You always have some regret that we have to uh, actually bring these to a close. But a couple things I really wanted to lift up from what you shared, because I do think it was incredibly expansive what you laid out. But I think it's really around kind of optimizing around a different objective. You know, and putting well-being at the center of the economy, not just growth uh, or even just growth measured in terms of the GDP, but rather a much more holistic view on how we think about what we're all working for when we go to work um, and what the purpose of our economy is. And I think you paint such a compelling picture of what that would look like in terms of the role of business and helping to solve problems what that would mean for our communities and how we're connected to one another and to nature. Uh, and also that point about time I thought was so compelling. You know, at a time when we have so much um, pressure on our care economy and our care systems, what it would look like to actually invert that and have an economy that allowed for us to invest more in relationships, not just invest more for financial returns. And I think this is so much for folks to think about. And I really do express a lot of gratitude to you for taking the time to share this with us. Oh, it's lovely uh, to hear you say that. I mean, I'm really delighted to have been involved in this. And I also want to thank you for all the amazing work you're doing with the gin and indeed in expanding horizons through this podcast. I've certainly been enjoying hearing from all the different guests. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm sure we'll keep in touch because we have a lot of work to do, as, as you point out. But for now, for our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast uh, and share your thoughts about Joe's vision and the next normal on social media. Uh, our next normal community knows that money can do so much more than just make more money. And with your help, uh, we're aiming to show the world how. So until next time, take care. <laughs>